0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A N G I.com. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number
1: 871. This is uh, Charlie Hunnam, who, of course, uh, you may know as Jax from Sons of Anarchy, uh, but he is also a delightful individual who is so open and warm, and it just. If if you looked at Charlie Hunnam or his performances and you're like, "Hey, I think I might uh, have a crush on that guy," then I challenge you. And but if you didn't, if you didn't do that, then I challenge you to listen to him talk as a person and then not have a crush on him by the time you're done. He's a lovely human being. Uh, he's promoting King Arthur: Legend of the Sword out this Friday, May twelfth. This was the Talking with Chris Hardwick episode uh, from last Sunday. This is the extended version on the Nerdist Podcast. Um, and then uh, Jordan Peel is the next guest. That's Sunday, May 14th on AMC at 11 10 Central. And then, of course, the podcast or so the extended version will be on the following week. I know Jordan was just on at the podcast, but uh, it's still worth a listen. Still worth a listen next week. But right now, this is Charlie Hunnam uh, promoting King Arthur Legend of the Sword Friday, May 12th on the Nerds Podcast. Katie, please roll the talking with Chris Hardwick
2: thing.
0: Now entering. Nerdist.com.
1: My guest tonight burst onto the scene as Nathan Maloney in the British version of Queer as Folk goofed around as a college student in Judd Apatow's Undeclared was a pivotal plot point in the Civil War love story Cold Mountain and stormed our shores piloting Jaegers and stomping Kaiju in the blockbuster Pacific Rim. And I think we could probably 100% agree that his role as Jax, the hamlet of biker gangs in the critically acclaimed series Sons of Anarchy, made us all stand up from our couches and go, oh my God, I love this guy, I love you so much, Charlie, I love you so much. Tonight, we're going to find... Some of you probably did that, for real. Tonight, we're going to find out more about his life and career, as well as his starring role in Guy Ritchie's King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Spoiler alert, he is King Arthur. That is right, friends. Tonight, the incredible Charlie Hunnam will be talking with Chris Hardwick. from you on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook using @talking. so I'm going to read your questions, comments, some comments, even showing video messages you sent in for Charlie, and folks in the studio audience, Comic-Con style, will get to stand up and ask their questions, but uh, I'm going to start the chat a little bit first. Please welcome Charlie Hunnam. Thank you for being here, Charlie. Charlie is You were very gracious and came on the Nerdist podcast. Maybe I don't know. It was like three or four years ago. Yeah, and maybe even five. Could have been as long as five years ago. And it was one of those ones where, you know, every once in a while, one will just really resonate with people. And then for the re- forever, people are like I really love that one with. And
2: you were one of those ones. People That's cool. re- really love the chat. Yeah, I was saying people have brought that up to me since too. You know, sounds like you have a big following, and well, I do too. You have a big so following. So those yeah. followings met and we made. Podcast love. Well, we did make sweet podcast love. (laughs) Oh, my God. Half the audience just got pregnant. (laughs) But I
1: I think it, you know, I don't see you do a lot of long-form stuff. So I think it was Mm -hmm. one of those things of like, oh, I don't really know anything about Charlie. And you had so much great stuff to talk about. And we're going to cover a lot of it tonight. But I want to start with King Arthur uh, because my wife and I watched it the other night. And it's fantastic. Uh, Guy Ritchie directed King Arthur. And he, of course, is King Arthur. And it's just a really great... Take on it. It's epic, but it moves, and it has the kind of the Guy Ritchie filter to it. Um, but you guys shot that in the UK. Had you been
2: back for a while? No, i I'd, uh, I'd been doing Sons of Anarchy for we shot it seven seasons over the course of eight years, and so I had been trying to also nourish a film career at the right. same time. So I would shoot the show for six months and then try to do a film in, in my off time, and so that had been keeping me really, really busy. And I'd actually been talking to my girlfriend, really coveting, you know, going and spending a good piece of time and reconnecting with the rhythm of life in England. So my yeah. girlfriend and I had actually talked about maybe going to rent a house once the show finished in, uh once sun's finished and we we're going to go to London, maybe get a house for six months and just see what life felt like and then halfway through the last season of Sons, I, uh, I got King Arthur. So that took me there for seven months anyway. So oh, wow. So it was great. Uh, I did that film, and then I did another film called The Lost City of Zed right after, right. which also um, we shot in the U.K., uh, at least half of it. So I ended up being there for about ten months. So you're from Newcastle? Yes. And although did, did, you, did you get to spend time there? No, I didn't. You know, I most of my family live down south now, and so I used to go up and visit my dad in Newcastle a lot. But but he's not there anymore. So, um, but we we shot up in um, up in uh, the Highlands of Scotland, which okay. is an area that I spent a lot of time in my youth and one of my favorite places in the world. If you've never been up to there, I would really recommend it's, it. it.
1: It's really stunning. I mean, it's just the greenest green you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, and the night sky is it just it's like. It's like a chandelier hanging down. There's so many stars in the
2: sky. Right. Is that,
1: w- were you going to end up there someday, you think? Maybe just move out to the highlands?
2: I mean, every time I'm up there, I have that fantasy of just going up and, you know, disconnecting from life and yeah. living, you know, a little bit more quiet, peaceful life. But I've got a few more things I want to do before all of You're that. You're still
1: very young. It's still You still have plenty of time before you need to think about going away anywhere. I mean, there's rumors... That you have a ranch outside of Los Angeles somewhere is that yeah. uh, true that,
2: is that true? No, I got a big mouth. I was doing um, <laughs> <laughs> I was doing a lot of press. I think for sons, at a time that I was deciding that I was going to go and buy a ranch, and okay. I put in an offer, and uh, the offer got accepted. it was actually pretty close to l a about an hour outside of town, and it was maybe. I think it was maybe like eight and a half, nine acres, something like that, with a bunch of chickens and some uh, donkeys that we were going to inherit and a horse. And then an acre of um, organic vegetable garden, which basically it was just my paradise, what i have been dreaming of for years. But I had 18 months of work lined up straight. Got it. King Arthur being one of them, Lost City of Z, and then another film that I was scheduled to do that I didn't end up actually going to do to shoot. It fell through. But I realized I was just going to buy this ranch, move my girlfriend there, and then leave for 18 months. <laughs> <So> which they <laughs> were with the chickens and the, the donkeys. Chickens, yeah, which seemed like enormous I got enormous. you some friends. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> exactly. So I realized that you know, timing's everything, and. But at that time, it wasn't right. So, so what is, So, just
1: if you don't mind going back a little bit and talking about England and growing up, um, what is what is tiny Charlie Hunnam like? What are you like as a kid? Like, what do you what do you want to do? What do you think you can do when you when
2: you're in England? What do your parents do? You know, I grew up in 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 Newcastle, like you said, which is. Was a big important city in the Industrial Revolution. So it's a very beautiful city that, when as it was growing, there was a lot of money being generated in that part of the world there was shipbuilding, uh, coal mining, a lot of factory work. And then, towards the middle of the century, a lot of those industries dried up and the area fell into a period of economic decline. And so, when I was growing up there, it was pretty poor. And people were really just going through the motions, trying to survive. And I felt like I was just a weird kid and, you know, grown <laughs> into a pretty weird adult. Um, but <laughs> it's a true story. Uh, <laughs> but I just remember one of my earliest and most powerful sort of. Like original thoughts that I had, there's something that hadn't come across, you know, from my, you know, conversations I'd overheard with teachers or or parents or anything. I I started to get sort of fixated with this idea that people weren't, they were, they were just engaged in the rhythm of life, whether it was like social or environmental responsibilities, being parents or husbands or wives, or you know that life itself was dictating the rhythm of their life. And there was a lot of people I felt like sort of stuck in that and weren't able to bring forth their intention for what they wanted their life to be. And, I mean, I'm talking young. I was thinking about this at five and six, you know, just sort of aware that people weren't really happy. And I decided then, I sort of begged the question, like, what do I want to do with my life? And what is my intention? And... I was always really, really involved, uh, you know, interested in film and involved myself in sort of amateur performing arts and stuff. And so that just became this fixation for me from a very young age that I wanted to get out of that part of the world and go and spend my life working in film. Did you tell your parents this? Were they supportive? I did. I mean, I did. I was always very vocal about it. I remember it actually sort of felt like full circle when I got King Arthur because Excalibur, John Borman's film Excalibur, was right. a very instrumental and important film in my childhood. And I'd watch it over and over again. I remember having conversations with my mom, when I was probably maybe six, seven, eight, something like that, and asking her what are, what are the logistics of filmmaking in terms of... I was watching these people, you know, doing this heroic stuff, sword fighting and riding horses and, you know, kissing the pretty girl at the end of the film and all of that. And I said, I was interested in how that would come together. So I asked my mum, what do they do? Do they go out and look for an actor that knows how, that has that skill set, that knows how to sword fight, knows how to ride horses and kiss pretty girls. And she <laughs> said, um, no, I don't think so. I think you probably, like, hire somebody who has the spirit and the, you know, the, the look and the energy of, of, of what they're looking for in that character and then teach them those skills. Uh-huh. And obviously, as a seven-year-old kid, that just blew my mind <laughs> that you could be your job learning how to sword fight and ride horses and stuff. So that was... Um, it, was, it felt sort of kismet and like a full circle when I actually ended up getting the role of King Arthur, you know, because that, that role had been one of the big genesis moments of consolidating this dream that I had of being an actor. Was Guy Ritchie, was he familiar with your work at all, or did they have you... In- yes, unfortunately he was. <laughs> <laughs> he had only seen one film that I had done, and he really wasn't a fan of it at all. Oh, <laughs> and, wow. And nor the work that I had done in it. And so it was funny. I had, I have a bunch of people in common with uh, Guy, uh, like my manager, for instance, used to represent Guy for years. And so there'd been this connective tissue between us. I'd had a lot of people saying, telling me over the years, like. I, you know Guy Ritchie? And I would say, no. He said, oh, you kind of remind me of him. Like, the, you guys are cut from the same cloth, you know, two peas in a pod. And so I felt this sort of connection to him. And I'd obviously, as, as we all are, I'm a huge fan of his work and had been for years. And so I felt this sort of connection to him and I just assumed that whenever we met or when our paths inevitably crossed, it was we gonna were gonna be, be ma- it was gonna be magic. Yeah, we were gonna be pals, it was gonna be magic, and everything was gonna be great. And then um and then King Arthur came along and I thought King Arthur, one of my favorite stories, and this big instrument uh thing in my childhood, this 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 important movie in my film in, in my childhood and uh And Guy Ritchie, it just seemed like a match made in heaven. And so my manager, who knows him very well, reached out and said, what do you think about that? And he said, yeah, I think that's a terrible idea. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm not interested at all. And she said, why? And he told her that he'd seen this film and he didn't think I was very good in it. And uh, (laughs) and so this is all my whole, uh, this whole thing that I'd built up, this fantasy of, of our uh, of our, you know, first meeting has just crumbling. And it really hurt my feelings. Oh, no. And so no. it did. I'm not just working these These ladies will beat you. the shit out of Guy no, Ritchie I for know. you. No, it ends well. He's a lovely man. Okay, good. So I decided it was... This was happening and on the, while we were shooting the last season of Sons of Anarchy and the, we had a hiatus for a week in the middle right at the time that he was going to meet actors. And so I said, you know what? I'm just going to get on a plane and I'm going to go to England and I haven't seen my mom for a while so it'll be nice. I'll go see my family and just get me in a room with him because I just want an hour to have a cup of tea so we can see who I am because yes. I just felt... I felt it was reductive. He just sort of dismissed me and I said, I'm not having it. So <laughs> I... Uh, so, so you I fatal to attractioned England. him. Yeah, I fatal yeah. attractioned him. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And so we got, uh, we, we went, I got there and we, um, we sat down in his living room and ended up having a one hour long conversation about California medical marijuana. Oh, wow. And, uh, which I know nothing about. <laughs> he lied. Um, so, uh, so uh, that sort of cemented our friendship and we liked each other. And, uh, and then before we knew it, he'd asked me to come in and audition, stay a couple of extra days. So I. I did uh, some auditions, and he ended up giving me the role. So I'm glad that I took the initiative and got on the plane and went. And what do you think it was
1: that? I mean, what is it about? Because not everyone would think to do that, you know. I mean, this business, which 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 there's so much rejection and there's so much stonewalling, and hmm. you never know why you don't get stuff. Sometimes you know, it's like you know. But something in your brain said, "No, I really feel like
2: if I can just get in front of him, it's going to work." So what made you? You know do what? That? Honestly, I didn't think that. I I thought that. I I thought that um, ultimately I wasn't going to get the role. I just felt... I just had concocted this scenario in my mind that we were going to, like, love each other and be like pals at some point. (laughs) And then he just (laughs) completely brushed that aside. And my feelings were hurt. And I just said, you know what this is bullshit. I know yeah. he's going to like me. I'm a very charming guy, you know? So <laughs> I said, uh, I'm just going to get on a plane. And, and it wasn't really with the intention of thinking that I was going to secure the role. I just thought I would, you know, make him like me and we might become <laughs> pals, you know? So Well, you know, with, uh, with Sons of Anarchy,
1: you know, that, that's, that's a show that's a... Jax is a career-defining role. I mean, like, I know you had done a lot of... Thank you. And, you know, I know you had worked a ton up until that, but is that when you really felt things start to click? And at any point, did that role feel constrictive to you because you're like, shit, I don't want to be this guy forever. I want to go on and do other things. I mean, what was the push and pull? Uh, Well, the initial
2: reaction that I had was... uh, was that it was a profoundly positive and exciting thing, obviously. And, and that was really my, my relationship with it all the way through. But it did come at a time that was very important for me to get something sure. that I could sink my teeth into. I'd been struggling. We talked about it, I think, last time we spoke. But I'd been really struggling in my career in that I had a clear idea of the type of movies I wanted to be doing and the directors that I wanted to be working with. And I was being very exacting in my pursuit of that, you know, sort of non um, you know, malleable in what I was really considering. Um, but it was really difficult, and I was spending enormous periods of time unemployed. I mean, I spent two and a half years once where I didn't make a single penny, didn't do a day's, an hour's work on a set. I had another period of two years and another period of 18 months. So you add all those up together, and they were consecutive. I did one film in between each of those periods mm-hmm. of unemployment, and I just felt like You know, I'm certainly not saying that it's like, you know, woe is me in the life of an actor's heart because there's people out there that are really struggling. But within the context of that, of the profession, it does have some severe, some, some significant challenges. And so... I had found myself just endlessly waiting for the phone to ring for, you know, literally week after week, going into months and sometimes years. And I just thought, what am I doing with my life? And I would get really close to, you know, to a a project with an actor, with a director I was really excited about and a script that I thought was wonderful And the director would—I had a few of these instances in a row where the director would fall in love with me and say he's my guy. But I didn't have any cachet with the financiers or the studios, and I would—I didn't end up getting the role because of it. So, I right before I got sons, I had had this idea of a script that I wanted to write about Vlad the Impaler that we discussed on Nerdist at great length, and I just felt like I had to do something to take some control over my career and get, you know, and have a purpose of specific linear purpose every day when I woke up in the morning. So I had about, i just finished doing a movie, and I had about 18 months' worth of money in the bank. I knew if I just ate rice and tuna, (laughs) cans of tuna, I could survive for 18 months. And I sat down and said, I'm not going to read another script. I'm not going to be an actor for 18 months. I'm going to sit down and take this time and write a script and do something that's creatively fulfilling and that, like, you know, try to have try to uh, approach it from a different angle and create some sense of control. So I wrote that script and ended up managing to sell it and came out of that period and said, okay, now I better return to being an actor and see what, what's what. And the first script I read after that hiatus was, um, was Sons of Anarchy. And it was really because I had a big... I hadn't read a script in 18 months, but I had a fairly <laughs> large pile of scripts to read and I was sort of reluctantly you know, sort of circling this my desk with this ba- big pile. And Sons of because it's a TV script, was way thinner than any of the other scripts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll, start, I'll start with that one. And I read it and was just blown away and said, man, I'll do anything to, you know, get me in a room with these guys. I want to try to get this role. You know, it's so... I, I find as many in the, like, almost 900 podcast episodes
1: I've, I've done is, is talking to people and finding out what you just said, which is... You know when people kind of abandon trying to be something to everyone else and focus on the thing that they care about or like what's creatively fulfilling to them just and i'm not a mystical person anyway but something in the universe changes yeah and it's almost like other entities recognize that and are kind of drawn to you and maybe it's because you exude a sense of like oh i i know what i want and that's attractive
2: in some way do you have a do you have a take on that I do. Uh, twofold. I mean, I, there's, there's an amazing uh, Henry David Thoreau quote that I've always loved from Walden. Um, Thoreau is a man who decided to go and try to figure out what the meaning of life was, and he went to... Um, he segregated himself from society and went and lived in a cabin on Walden Lake yeah. and wrote this incredible dissertation about, on, his, on his theory of the meaning of life from what he'd learned from this period. But there's a, there's a quote from that book that, I, that always really resonated, where he said, I have learned this at least by my experiment, that if one advances confidently in the direction of their dreams and endeavors to live the life that they have imagined, they will meet with success, unexpected in common hours. And that idea of the unexpected in common hours, I thought always really has, has struck me as has got a, a great amount of truth to it, because... And the, the, other, the other thing that I, I read, an interesting book a while ago called, I think the Seven Rings or the Five Rings, and it was about a samurai. And he talks a lot about the sacrifices that the samurai would make to their sword. Everything is about the relationship with their sword. And no sacrifice is too great to make to that sword because you make all of that sacrifice with the agreement that in the moments, whether it would be one second or three minutes every ten years, you're going to need that sword to save your life. And it'll be there for and you. And it'll be there for you. Right. And so um, I've often thought about that, that, you know, you, you put in 40% effort, you get 40% results. You put in 80% effort, you get 80% results. But if you put 100% effort in, somehow the universe conspires to help you and you'll get 120% result, you know? And so... Um, none of that was particularly linear, what I just said. No, but no, it was but it all, all circling around but it the all, same it idea.
1: All, it all makes sense uh, because it it does help explain... I mean, again, you know, everyone runs off in a million different directions. Oh, my God, I'm, you know, if you're auditioning, oh, I want this person to like me, and this bro oh, what, they didn't like, oh, no, I got so close, you know, mm. or whatever it is that, that, that people are pursuing. And there really is, you know, like when you just kind of let all that crap go... And just go, well, what do I want? You know, what makes, me, what makes me happy? Which is a question I think a lot of people don't really even know how to answer or even bother asking themselves. Yeah. But I think it is one of the single most important questions to be able to answer as a human. Right. Uh, and people just don't take the time to do it. And I've always been impressed with... Because it really... It seems like you just work on stuff that you're interested in and cool stuff. And then when the whole Fifty Shades thing happened and they cash in Fifty Shades, like, oh, you know, Charlie's a good guy. That's going to be a big franchise. And then it all kind of went away, and then I—I I, I don't know. I had a lot of—I re- had a lot of respect for. I don't know. It just like to kind of walk away from something like that that you knew was probably going to be a commercial success,
2: but yeah. maybe just didn't feel right to you. Is that how it went down, or what was the? I mean, with that specifically, uh, there were many moving elements to that. Um, I was, I got myself in a position because I was emotionally in a bit of a wrought place that had a big thing happen in my life, my personal life, and it had thrown me for a spiral, you know? Um, And so I, well, I don't think I was thinking clearly. And I was in a great position in my career where for the first time I was getting offered tons of interesting stuff. And I've always, I've always felt very strongly just do one thing at a time and do it to the best of your ability. Um, and, and but then all of a sudden, in the face of all of this opportunity that was coming my way, it was a little harder to practice what I was preaching, sure. and I just took on too much and felt like not only... It takes an enormous amount of focus and energy to make a movie and be a significant part of that process, and I felt like everybody needs to give it their all to make sure this, this collective... You know process bears the fruits that you ha you you would hope it to, and I just felt like I was spreading myself too thin um and I'd already given my word to Guillermo del toro who who was a friend of mine I'd worked with before that I would star in this other movie and that had been that had preceded um um the sun. i mean the um, fifty shades so it was very uh, it was really quite unfortunate and quite stressful um uh, because I accepted the role, and they publicized it to um, you know pretty pretty um, you know pretty robustly, and then all of a sudden uh, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do it. So <laughs> just um,
1: kidding, yeah,
2: a little bit. <laughs> so it was uh, it was a rather stressful period of my life, but um, you live and learn, as they say.
1: Yeah, but I think it's I think it's a uh, it's a it's a smart thing to be able to do to realize when you're spreading yourself too thin, because. You know especially with what we do it's like well i don't know if I'm going to work again, you, you know you, you work, you take work because you go this is kind of you, we gather these acorns right if, if there are lean times, you want to appreciate the work that you get so to, to kind of let something go because you feel like it's too much is, is i mean it's a good
2: decision, but it's not a decision everyone would would make right right, but I think also you I think having integrity and being authentic and true to yourself, sort of circling sure. back to your initial um, conversation point, I think is essential, you know, because ultimately, you know, it's a hard business and ultimately it is a business and you always a tendency um, or an emphasis put on one's momentum and um, cachet in the, in the business right. at large. And so uh, uh, something like that comes up and for sure... I think it was just a given. I don't think anybody had any doubt in their mind that it was going to come out and be an enormous financial success. But at the center of it, I I had to question if it was if that was leading the motivation to say yes and be involved in that uh, as much as like a creative decision. I mean, I think you you maybe dodged a little bit of a bullet. You know what? To be really to be fair, you know, I, I got to I got to uh, let's just be honest. I, I I don't know. I I got to like um, and admire all of the people involved in that film because I, I was in it. And so I was in, interacting with these people. Had
1: you already started rehearsals and everything? or was No,
2: there... but there'd been a long gotcha. process of chemistry readings sure, sure, sure. and stuff. And so I got to know Dakota very well, and I got to know Sam, the director, um, very, very well, and, and got to really um, care about her as a as a pal. And so, you know, it was it was funny because I was just, I, I never wanted to have to have an opinion about it so I never saw the films. So, you know, and time anyone talks about it, I sort of just sure. tune it out a little bit because right, right, I right. had nothing but the regret for the way I, you know, for the difficulty that I had created for those people when yeah. I pulled out and you know, and hope that it would be very successful for them. So. Well, listen, listen, you know, it's... And it's I think it has been, right? I mean, very, it made listen, it you an enormous know, amount of there's money. There's nothing
1: wrong with Twilight for MILFs. Like, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a different... You know, everyone deserves a movie. Every audience deserves a movie. Every audience deserves a movie.
2: Do you guys like the movie? <laughs>
1: Uh,
2: uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Moving on.
1: <laughs> but it allows you to make cool stuff like you know, uh, like King Arthur or Lost City. You say Lost City of Z, but we say Z here in the United States. But you mean is it Z, is it Z here? Are they saying Lost City Z of Z here? I think they're saying Z. It's Lost City of Z yeah.
2: here. I mean, you could make an argument that you know, America speaks English, which was obviously created in England, so maybe. <laughs> yeah. Zed it should be gonna, the correct like, split way. Hairs, yeah. might be the correct pronunciation, yeah. but yeah. I mean I am no one to talk <laughs> because I go to England now and people think I'm American. So.
1: Really? Yeah. Now, okay, so that's kind of an inter- I, that's an interesting question. Does that affect I mean, your identity being this, you know, you're here and you're there. Do you, I, I know you identify as British, but do you identify as American at all? Like what
2: do you who do when you go back, do you feel like a little bit of an outsider? I do, a little bit. And it's so funny, geographical identity because it doesn't really ultimately mean anything, right. but it is people are incredibly passionate about their geographical identity and the identity of dialects, particularly in England, which is so small but has such heightened, very, very specific regional dialects everywhere, you know? So um, I had already sort of gone through a couple of... Uh, experiences of knowing, understanding how vilified you can be for like, s- for surrendering a, a, a specific I- identity and sure. taking another one on. Because I had moved to um, from Newcastle to the Lake District, which are two very, very different dialects, at a time when I was impressionable young and just wanted to fit in. I moved on, I think I was about 13. It was very difficult to move you know, 200 miles to go to a new school and a whole new friends and everything at that age. So one of the things that I think I did was, one of the ways I tried to fit in was by uh, assimilating that accent. Oh, wow. You know? and, and then going home immediately, like, six months later and all my old pals being like, Oh, you're fucking talking different now, aren't you? you're too good for us. And like, like, wow, people are really passionate about their
1: regional identity. Yeah. Yeah, there's now, a tremendous amount of there is a tremendous amount of tribalism yeah. in in a very small area. It seems like yeah, because in America, I think we sort of we kind of understand like, well, America's very large, so you know the Midwest is this, and South is this, and Texas is its own thing, and then New York <laughs> is this. Uh, but there, I mean, you know, you have a landmass about the size of California, but with that much specific subset genre cultural diversity, right? So, do you feel like that helped you in this business at all, in the assimilation process? Does that help you as an actor?
2: I think so. I mean, it, it, would, it would seem so, right? Yeah. Um, like, on the surface, just that, like, thing of being able to, you know, pick up accents and, and, and all of that. But, um, but, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. It certainly made me fearless about coming out here when I was 80 and alone. I mean, right. I... I didn't know anybody when I came to L.A. I, just, I was at college um, studying film and got an opportunity to start working as an actor. So I took this role in Cruise Folk that you had mentioned. Uh, and then once I finished that, I was sort of at a crossroads. I could go back to film school, but I realized I'd been at film school for about a year and realized I'd learned more on my first day on a real set than I had in, in 12 months of academic um, you know, research of right. what filmmaking is and so the practical application and so i i didn't know what to do though i finished uh this this tv show and was really literally about to go back and move back in with my mom and continue going to college and i got a call from someone saying they'd seen the show um a manager from los angeles that they'd seen the show and thought that i was good and and wondered if i would like representation and like to come out here and you know go seek my fortune so I just came out at 18 by myself and, um, you know, I think had I not had that experience of having to completely reinvent myself and start over in my mid-teens, it might have been a bit more daunting to do that.
1: I mean, I don't... We don't know each other that well, but I just have a sense that, I don't know, do you feel as confident as it seems you are? Like, it just seems like... Charlie seems like a guy you could just drop him in anything and he'll fucking figure it out. You know what I mean? Like I could I, like I could drop you in the middle of the wilderness and you you'd go, "Okay, yeah, okay, I got to use that snake as a ladder and I'll cut down that tree and I'll make a fire with my fists." Like, how, do do you do you does it does the world feel like that to you? Do you feel no, like it No, the doesn't. Opposite. Really?
2: <laughs> the absolute opposite? Yeah, I feel Sort of, you know, like I've got my neuroses and my, um, you know, my things that I, you know, worry about and feel... Inadequate, and you know, like everybody else, all, all the time. I mean, I'm here. I got very nervous about coming here. I was really? just driving over, and I re- I hadn't sp- I hadn't talked about the film or done any interviews. And this is sort of, you know, it's not a natural thing to be doing, sitting and talking in front of, you know, very lovely people, but none of you I know at all, and having a conversation <laughs> like this. I mean, you do it day in, day out, but it takes a certain amount of focus and energy to do this. And I just came back from vacation where I'd been thinking about nothing. So I. I started <laughs> <laughs> and nothing but what I was going to eat, gonna eat for a, lunch, and while I was, in was eating. King Arthur,
0: what? Right? Yeah, no, know, it was a little Arthur, bit. Like, like hey, King I King thought, Arthur.
2: oh my goodness, I'm going to actually have to go and string a sentence together here and try to maybe tell a couple of jokes. So. Oh my God, yeah. Well,
1: wait do you get into junket mode, and then you have to oh like, answer goodness, the same yeah. five fucking questions <laughs> over and over and over and over and over again? Yeah. Um, but I definitely want to get some general questions from the audience because uh, this is this is partially why we're here. Oh wow, this is Romanda Tidball on Twitter. Hi, Charlie, would you play James Bond if you were offered the role? Um. <laughs> oh, this lady who has just decided
2: to be your agent has said yes. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I'm actually talking um, to somebody about a sort of a, a spy genre film um, set in America that we're all very, very excited about. Um, I feel like Daniel Craig's doing a great job and whoever else. Yeah. That goes down to that. That identity thing, I mean I know I'm playing King Arthur, but you, you can almost get away with King Arthur easier than you can well, get. Well there's
1: not away gonna with... be like nine King Arthur movies. You never know. I guess there could you be. You never
2: know. I guess there could be.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it is, it is like how do you how do you pull away from that kind of indelible, you know, because I, I would imagine you probably wanna it, there must be an allure of like, oh, it's such an iconic role, but at the same time, mm. do I wanna do that for, you know, a decade? Right. Well listen, they haven't asked me, so I don't need to worry about it. <laughs>
2: Uh, this It's my life. Eighty-seven. What is your pet peeve? Um, I'm a total germaphobe, and so um, I really hate having to shake hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wish you had told me that before I shook your hand when you got here. <laughs> no, I, listen, I initiated. Okay, uh, that's true. Because I understand that in some situations it's you know it's the thing to do. But yeah. uh, I was I was at a restaurant the other day um, eating some curry with bread and it was like getting right in there with my hands and a guy came over really really sweet guy who just was a big fan of sons and wanted to just come over and say hello and and shake my hand but you know sometimes when somebody and it happens to me too there's somebody that you watch on tv or that you admire in some way and you meet them you get a little nervous and i don't know about you guys but sometimes my hands get a little sweaty when i'm (laughs) nervous and this guy suffered from that same affliction, so <laughs> I, I had, you know, I had a little sweaty handshake right in the middle of uh, eating my meal, so that. <laughs> so was... the rest of the time you were just trying to eat with. Yeah, the other I head. was. I ate. I ate <laughs> I said, "All right, I guess I'm gonna have to get a fork and, <laughs> and just use this hand." Because you
1: don't want to be rude, and then the, when they, you know, like a second he walks away, you're doing this, and he right, turns your around, you're like, "Oh, right. hi!" I yeah, was. Yeah. Uh, sure. I was That's... not. I didn't mean to wipe your essence off my hand. Right. What's the weirdest thing that Evan has? said or done to
2: you in... I got a letter a while ago from a lady in Italy uh, and it was very very straightforward you sort of basic like really like you think you great would like to meet you sometime uh, but if that doesn't happen is there any chance you could send me a lock of hair or one of your fingernails
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, oh. I mean, and, the... then she, and then she said you may think that this sounds fetishistic and you would be right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I send her some fingernails. <laughs> Did you what? really? No, oh, oh, that's crazy. Be amazing. No, <laughs> no. So that was uh, that was an unusual one. Do fans
1: ever give you career advice? Because I find sometimes, just being you know in juxtaposition of The Walking Dead, like people will come up and they'll, like they talk at the actors like, how could you do that? Mm-hmm. You know. Do, do people... Because, they you know, people do have that kind of an ownership over, I think, over their fandoms. You know, it's like yeah, they, sure. they let the show into their homes. It's very intimate to them. They connect to it. And so they sort of watch it like it's a documentary. Right. So I do, they probably do feel some sense of ownership over you. So do people just kind of come up and go, you know what you ought to do?
2: Yeah, that happens. That happens. <laughs> um, I don't know why. This doesn't really answer your question. But what came into my mind when you were saying that is I went... I was doing a f- another film... Um, and I was playing a guy coming out of prison, and I wanted to go and visit a prison just to sort of feel what that rhythm was like. So I got um, invited to go to Ayman Prison. <laughs> so sorry, I
1: thought you were going to say, so I got arrested. So I got arrested, yeah, sure.
2: <laughs> no, I went and visited this prison, which is a supermax prison in Arizona called Ayman. And it's heavy, like the. St- Like, the vibe in there was really, really serious. And there'd just been a stabbing in this main hall right before, and so they'd cleared it out. And then we went into this giant hall, and it was, like, an old-school prison with, um, like, four um, tiers of, like, four levels and, like, the metal bars all the way along and everyone looking in. And the the warden had such an enormous amount of power, and, like, these dudes were, like, serious, you know, contenders. Like, these were... Real deal. No joke. Real deal. All like in maximum security serving, you know, long sentences. And we walked in. It was really rowdy. And just the energy hit us. And I was like, man, this is probably not the smartest place to be. Uh, And then this hush fell over and fell over the whole place. And I heard one guy like, yo, big dog, big dog's here. And they were talking about the warden. And it was just was clear the enormous amount of power that this guy had in that environment. And then it was all, like, very, very quiet for a second. And I just felt like all of this intention was on us. And I never wanted to feel more, like, anonymous. and, And then someone screamed... Yo, Jax, we're able at homie. And I realized, oh, God. all of these people know me, and so it was ended up being cool. And I walked around, had some conversations with people, but it doesn't really answer your question. But it's kind of a sweet
1: moment. But it is—it is, it is one of those moments where you know, because I—and there are times when I'm sure you don't want to be recognized, you know, if you're having a bad day or if you're having. But certainly in a maximum security prison, you want people to be fans. Yes, Yeah, that's, you yeah, that's, that's where you want it. Yeah. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, our audience members are going to get up and ask questions of Charlie Hunnam, who is here. Also, questions uh, from you guys at home. And if you want to be a part of the show, we're at Talking on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You're going to find exclusive updates about upcoming guests and ask questions that you have for these guests. Because no matter who we're talking to, you are part of the conversation more with Charlie Hunnam when we come back on Talking with Chris Hardwick. <laughs> Welcome back to Talking with Chris Hardwick. Hi, <laughs> hey, Chris Hardwick. Charlie Hunto is my guest. Now it's time to have a very nice fan from the audience get up and ask a question. Please stand up and ask your question. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? What's your name? My name's Mark. I'm from San Pedro. Wait, I'm sorry, what was it? Mark from San Pedro. Hey, Mark. What is your question? My question is for Charlie. I uh, what imagine.
2: type? <laughs> <laughs> what type of sword training did you do for King Arthur? And was there any mishaps? Um not any hilarious or significant mishaps, and a million small knocks to the mainly on the hands on the knuckles you know that cumulatively end up with a sore hand at the end of a long day of sword fighting, but um I know people always say it those those whether it's um, fist fighting or sword fighting or staff fighting for film is always much more like a dance you know it's like you just learn a couple of those moves very specifically choreographed and then you do a couple more and you do a couple more um and then put the whole thing together so it's not as scary or exciting or fun as it might be i heard that um russell crow i mean this is just Pure gossip, but why not? Uh, I heard that Russell Crowe on Gladiator used to go off book in terms of the choreography and would just start swinging that the sword about around. Right. Yeah, that tracks. And so, uh,
1: I don't think uh, anyone here is surprised to hear that.
2: Yeah, no. After a while, you know, he was just uh, he was <laughs> just, just working with probably even guys. when the
1: cameras weren't even rolling. Yeah, right. He was still <laughs> yeah. swinging a sword, and even the fact that I'm saying that, making jokes about it, he's right. probably going to attack me. Yeah, with you a sword. better not have him on the show. Uh, you know, I have a very special gift for you. Ah, oh, these pants and these boots. Cut that part out. All right. Mark, I have a very special gift for you. Mark, would you like to pull the sword out of the... <laughs> all right. I think Whosoever pulls this sword from think... the stone shall henceforth be king of all England.
2: I better oversee this. Yeah. See what my competition looks like. Marcus! Charlie signed that. Thank you very much.
0: Well done, go. sir.
1: Nice, nice to see you. Oh, he Thank just you. said he didn't like shaking hands, Mark. Uh. He just said, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, I Charlie Mark looks he's clean. Yeah, you yeah, don't yeah. have to worry about I'm it. I'm not worried I'm about dude. him. He's, he's all washed. Uh, next, we have a video message for a fan for Charlie, from a fan for Charlie. Let's take a look.
0: Hi, my name is Amy. I'm from Hoboken, New Jersey. I'm a big Sons of Anarchy fan, and I was wondering if you're scared of ever being typecast as the tough guy.
1: Are you scared of ever being typecast as the tough guy? I'm so lovely.
0: <laughs> so clearly so lovely
2: and gentle. Um, I guess not. No, I love playing tough guys, though, so I, I seem to gravitate towards those roles, but uh, I never really worry about sort of being typecast, just probably because my mom tells me how lovely I am. Oh, that's yeah. On such good. a <laughs> <Yeah>. regular basis. <laughs> that's that, nice. Yeah, You're a nice boy. mitigates any, any fear in that department. Did you were, you... were
1: you a tough kid growing up, or did you, or, or, or do you...
2: There were times where I had to be, but no, I mean, I was actually really scared most of the time. I, I grew up in a place where dudes loved to fight, and there was a lot of fighting um, all the time. There's a real currency in this little town that I grew up with in, in my teenage years called Penrith in the Lake District. Um, and there was... I didn't really fit in that well, or despite my best efforts initially, and then I decided, fuck it, I'm not even going to try after <laughs> right, a while. Right. And was just like the weird kid in town, and so I definitely found myself in situations pretty regularly where, where... There was either the threat of having to fight, or I actually did have to, sure. and I hated it. You know, and it was funny. Like I, I grew up. My dad's like a su- was a super super tough dude, and I always sort of had trouble reconciling the fear that I had in the face of violence when he was a dude who had really excelled in an industry, not an illegal industry, a legal industry, but that was often very um, Mm -hmm. self-policed. He was a scrap man, and those guys, there's a lot of theft in that business, and because there's a lot of theft in the the actual metal that they're trading is very valuable. It then becomes cost prohibitive to be able to insure. And so it's like one of those like legal businesses that ends up being self-policed where you have to have the reputation to back you up that people know if they mess around, come steal your shit, it's going to be a bad day for them, you know? And so my dad was super tough, and yet I found myself so afraid all the time of having to get involved in physical altercations, and it really bothered me, and I felt, like, a little bit, you know, insecure and and felt like a a sense of self-loathing as a teenager that I wasn't as tough as my dad, and I think I sort of probably went too far in writing that and trying to... Figure out a way to to mitigate or like to reduce that level of fear, and so I learned how to fight, and I sort of I think probably developed a bit of a dickhead tough guy persona <laughs> in like my teenage years, my early twenties. That took a while for me to catch that that I'd become something that I didn't really that I never wanted to be. It was just a reaction to the situation that I'd found myself in, you know. So did people.
1: Uh... How did bikers react to jacks? I mean, did people try to fight you in
2: public? You know, bikers specifically, a lot of those dudes are so tough. It's never really the really tough guys that you've got to worry about. It's the sort of medium-level tough guys that fancy themselves being tough but have a lot to prove. Right. Those are the dudes that you really got to watch out for. The actual, like, hardcore dudes and, like, real bikers that I interacted with a a lot, none of them ever gave me a hard time. They understood the show was sort of like the Pulp Fiction, like, larger-than-life right. uh, representation of their world and that we weren't trying to actually, you know, really portray them in, like, a very, like, um, you know, just a very, like, natural, authentic right? you know? Yeah, so, respectfully. You know, exactly, yeah. so...
1: We have another fan from the audience who's going to ask a question. Where are you? Oh, excellent. Do you need this microphone? You probably need this. What is your name?
0: My name's Chloe.
1: Chloe, what's uh, your question?
0: I was
2: wondering, what's the craziest thing you've ever done? ever Second seconds (laughs) coming on this show Um, i don't know i try not to do that you know what is funny i was actually just about to do the craziest thing that i uh, that i have ever done and then it ended up falling through but i'm going to still do it but i was supposed to do it last week um there's a friend of mine called michael Muller, who's an amazing photographer and he photographed sharks And he's taken to cage-free diving with the sharks. He just free-dives outside of the cage with great whites and everything, you know. I wasn't going with great whites, obviously, but I am have an abject terror of the ocean because of sharks. Um, But it's really cool. He's trying to get people that have a little bit of sort of a like uh like public figures or people that have a little bit of recognition to go out and dive with sharks to show that it's actually fairly safe and to try to change people's perception of of sharks cuz you know, we kill like 100 million sharks a year and the shark populations are in real trouble, uh, you know. And it's very hard to get people excited about shark conservation because they've been through Jaws and all of the other media. um, The the general media relationship with sharks is so vilifying that it's hard to get people to feel sympathetic for the plight. And so I had agreed (laughs) (laughs) to go swim with uh, tiger sharks and hammerhead sharks um, cage-free and then um, I don't know I still haven't gone to the bottom of it I suspect because I'm on a big press tour right now that somebody at the studio thought that that wasn't a great idea because <laughs> all of a sudden this photo shoot that I was supposed to do um, didn't happen um, but at some point in the future when I'm not under contract I'm gonna go and uh, God, it is with sharks
1: yeah my, my wife wanted my wife has been Had been dying to do it And we were in the Bahamas And she was like Well let's go out And we'll get on a boat And they take you And you kind of Everyone on the boat Sort of shimmies out Onto this rope That's tied Tethered to the boat And then there are sharks Swimming below And the idea is I mean you're talking about Actually swimming with sharks We were floating above them And they go Well they can't swim Straight up You know so Yeah, they, sure cor- they yeah can. I know That's what I said I'm like right. this, We're in their fucking living room What are you talking about And I've never I don't think I've ever really experienced the feeling before and just, just I'm just warning you ahead that you might feel because your body has a very visceral uh uh automatic reaction to Oh, I am prey. I am now prey. This thing can murder me in seconds, and I'd never really felt anything like that before. And and I, I immediately shimmied. Of course, my wife was like, "This is the greatest," and I'm like, uh, you know, I, I was shimmy, I shimmied back on the boat. I'm like, okay, this was really fun. Uh, have you been swimming with sharks? What's the craziest thing you've ever done?
2: Oh, I don't think I can say it. So <laughs>
1: good answer. I don't know. Kind of feel like you can. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, yeah, well, no. Um, I've she's had a- she's asking the question. I though, know, right? I know, but I'm not not sure actually enough. I think the craziest thing you guys probably wouldn't consider it that, but I
0: had a kid. Oh, yeah, that is crazy. That is the, craziest, that is the craziest adventure life done. has to offer. Yeah, is so. a, having,
1: well then I have a very, okay. So knowing you have a child, I have a very uh, special oh, thing no. for you, which I think this will. You, you know, your child probably needs to be protected running around. So now your child has a helmet signed by uh, Charlie Hunnam. What is your child's name? Riley. That's for Riley. Thanks. You're welcome. Uh, before we go to break, I want to let you guys know the uncut extended version of this will be available as a Nerdist podcast. If you go to amc.com/slash talking, you can get bonus clips, exclusive content, and links to the podcast for every one of our episodes. More with Charlie Hunnam in a moment. We'll see you in a sec. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome back to Talking with Chris Hardwick. Charlie Hunnam is talking with me, Chris Hardwick. So it's time for me to turn things over again to our live studio audience. Uh, anyone else have a question in the audience they would like to ask? Hello.
0: What is your name? Hi, I'm Nicole from Santa Clarita. Hi,
2: nice to see you. What's hi. your question?
0: Uh, Charlie, I just want to say hi. Love your work. Um, oh, thank so, you. from Santa Clarita? Yes.
2: We Do you sh- know where that is? Yeah, we shot there all the time on Sunday. Yes, I know, because like, I
0: saw you guys on Newhall Ranch Road. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I, absolutely. Um,
2: so, I know, I
1: used to stalk you in Santa Clarita. <laughs> yes,
0: I was that person back there. Um, so, fun fact, actually, my dad uh, sold his bike to the show in the first season, and it was Jax's bike. So my question was... Is that right? Yeah. Was, what happened to my dad's bike? <laughs> 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 I've been dying. I never thought I'd be able to ask, so...
2: It is in my garage. Is I stole it really? It. No, it's not. It
0: is that is. true? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you serious? No, I stole it. Oh my yeah. gosh! Uh,
2: <laughs> along with everything else I could steal at the end of that show, yeah. I figure I'd. What is your dad's name? Uh, Kevin Diggins. Oh my god! Thank <laughs> you. right on Kevin. Well, thank you for <laughs> the bike. One. One. Thank you for oh the bike, oh Kevin. I, I you. have a very special. <laughs> yes,
1: I have a very special. Oh my god! god. god. What? Oh my oh, gosh! I'm right here. I'm right here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Can I come? I'm
1: Uh, And the bike's
0: around the corner, right? The bike is around the (laughs)
1: corner Yeah, we'll get that to you Uh, So you have a very special vest here And then you have uh, (laughs) Of course, you're so welcome Let's take another question from the audience Uh, Come on up, come on up What is your name?
0: My name's Tova, and I'm from Malibu, California. Hello. Hello. Um, Charlie, will you sign this shirt for me? It's your actual shirt from Sons of Anarchy. My brother bought it for me. He's a huge prop collector, and I would love for you to sign it for me. Oh, wow. You absolutely have.
2: dying. I'm does dying. It, does it still smell? Yeah, no. <laughs> it used to
0: smell really good. Oh, my God.
2: Do you yeah. wear this shirt a lot? Do you wear it a lot?
0: Um, well, I didn't wear it this for a while. This was a favorite
2: of mine. This is like, was season it? three or yeah, four. It, it I used to rock this. Yeah,
0: Jack's in the back. It yeah, and, like, felt tip, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just. yeah. yeah, yeah. That okay, was so uh, here, where should you
1: sign?
2: Where would you ah! like me to sign it?
0: I'm shaking. <laughs> I don't know. Right okay, there is fine. Oh, my God. Oh, my. Thank you, God. Oh, my God. That's perfect. Thank
2: you, God. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh All right. God. That's <laughs> how you get out of here. Oh,
0: you got a hug.
2: My flesh. Is this that's your pet? pen? Yeah, it's my pen,
1: And I'm happily married <laughs> for 20 years. My husband said, just don't embarrass me. I said, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like, sounded like there was a butt at the end of, i am happily married for 20 years. But... <laughs> I mean, is this, you know, the, 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 fandom, the fandom for Sons is so. Oh my God. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fandom, you know, all these people here, these, these young ladies sitting in the front row are like, oh my God, we're so nervous because Charlie's right there. I mean, Sons resonated with people so, so much. And this is like, this is not ordinary fandom with Sons. It's, it's deep. Yeah. So when you look back at the series and your experience on the show, like, how do you see
2: it and what's your takeaway from it? I mean, that, that interaction that I have with the people that have, that have really loved the show continues and it's wonderful. I was in Thailand last week and a lot of people, a lot of the Thai people were coming up and, and it's just sort of recently reached the Thai shores. But it seems to be still making its rounds and people are enjoying it, which is great. You know, I mean, we put an, I, I, I put everything I have into these projects, so it's really wonderful when some of them work. But was it <laughs> hard to say goodbye to him? It was. It really was. I mean, there was a period I'd come to love that guy. I'd lived with him in my heart and soul for eight years, you know, and gotten to know him very well. And in a weird way that sounds sort of a little, you know, airy-fairy and maybe even, like, a little pretentious, but the truth is, like, he, like, became part of me. Like, Like, he was with me the whole time. And there were instances that happened during that period of the show that I feel like, Behaviorally, I operated differently than I would have either before or after. Um, I got burgled one night. I uh, actually got burgled twice during that period of time. And obviously the sensible thing to do is just to, you know, lock your doors and call the police, but I decided to go fight the dudes both times. <laughs> um, not advisable. You know, one time, the dude was big, and it was 3 o'clock in the morning, and he was in my yard, you know, and I had a 10-foot fence, so he tried pretty hard to get in there, you know, and uh, I just, you know, Jax took over and just handled the situation, <laughs> you know? And so it was uh, it was really hard to say goodbye to him, and you know, there were a lot of tears, and um, I found myself really sort of reluctantly letting it go. Although creatively I was ready to say goodbye to that experience and ready to move on and do different things, when it actually came to saying goodbye to Jax, it was much more um, significant and difficult than I'd anticipated. And I ended up, we shot on the on the same um, backlot for the seven years, and I got very close with the security dudes and all the people that worked around that Place. And I, um, for about three or four nights after we'd wrapped the show, I found myself getting on my bike and riding out there because I just wanted to sort of still be in that environment and sort of slowly say goodbye to Jax. And the first night I showed up there... The security guys were a little bit surprised that I was there because the show had wrapped and there was no reason at all to be there. And I sort of bullshitted them and said, i would forgotten something on the backlog. And they said, yeah, no problem, just go on. And so I went and hung out for a little while and, you know, may or may not have smoked a joint and just, like, <laughs> said, like, a farewell to Jax. And then the, the next night I showed up and they were like, you forget something? I was like, yeah, yeah, I, for- I, f- I forgot something else. I forgot how much
1: uh, I miss you guys. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it was it was a process to extricate him from my heart, but, you know. Well, he'll always be with us. That's right. It was uh, funny, you know, when Opie, when the, the guy played uh, Opie, um, um, was written off the show when he ended up leaving, he wrote this amazing essay called The Last Rites of Opie Winston. I never forget, there was one passage in it when he was talking because that had really blindsided him he didn 't know that his character was going to be he, you know we all assumed that really it was going to be Jackson Opie like running the show at the end of the at the end of the show um, and uh, and so he really was having a difficult time and he said, uh, he said this amazing thing that all actors like ha- like carry around this graveyard of characters that they've had to bring to life and then kill. But with Opie, it was the first time that the son of a bitch wouldn't die. And it was, like, (laughs) in him, and, like, he just felt this presence in a way that he'd never had before and in an act of... Uh, desperation, he'd found himself in a bookshop um, like a a performing arts bookshop up on Sunset I think, and he was looking at all these books on acting, and he said it was so interesting because there were all these books on character development and how to put a character together, and not a single chapter in any of those books how to kill the son of a bitch when you were finished, you know it was just really... Interesting, and I'd seen a few people that had been on that show because it's a very deep experience for all of us. Have real trouble saying goodbye to the experience and to each other. So I knew that I was in for a rough go when when I when we finally had. To I mean, say it goodbye is kind of chance, like but. a breakup in a
1: way because you're kind of like because you're in a relationship. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, it is. It's a it's a bereavement, but you're in a relationship that's just you know it's passed away. Right. I mean, it's not there anymore, and you don't you know. I mean, you could you because you're you and you have your face and your body, you can go look in the mirror and go, I'm Jax. But, you know, right. but it's not, but ultimately,
2: yeah, don't, I don't do that that okay, often. All right. All right. <laughs> well, I think we all like to imagine that you do. Yeah. But, but no, but I, I did get like weird about it. I, I kept the cut, obviously. I have the cut. I kept everything. I mean, I'm such a pikey. I stole everything I could. <laughs> I had the rings and the whole get up. I, had my, I have my knife. You have her dad's motorcycle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've got it all. Uh, I would have taken the table, but it wouldn't fit on the back of my bike. But. Um, <laughs> was I going to say oh yeah the cut and then since that final scene where I took the cut off I was very very strict about the fact that nobody could wear it like I have friends like hanging in my house and friends be like oh let me try that on and I just decided once I took it off the final time I was never going to put it back on and if I wasn't going to put it back on no one was going to put it back on on.
1: Uh, we have another video message let's see let's go to the video
0: Hey, this is Travis from Tacoma, Washington. And my question for Charlie is, uh, I know you worked with Judd Apatow on Undeclared. What are some of your favorite memories working with him?
2: Oh, that's a nice question. Um... Really aren't any jokes. <laughs> or real dickhead. No, I'm joking. No, uh, that was great. It was, you know, the period of time when I did that show. I'd just gotten to Los Angeles. Maybe I'd been here for eighteen months, but I hadn't developed a, a core group of friends. And so working with all those young guys, not not only did I have a great time with them on the show, but they became my little family in Los Angeles. Um, Jason Segel and Seth Rogen Mm -hmm. and and Jay Baruchel and Tim Sharp and all these people that have gone on to have, obviously, now enormous careers. But uh, it was great. I mean, it, it was... I think doing that show and getting and making those friendships is what kept me in LA cuz you know it was a hard place to settle and and you know I was pretty unsure I was unsure whether I was going to make a go of it and make my life here and it's really meeting those guys that sort of cemented the deal so do you, do, you ever, do you is there is comedy something that you ever think you might veer into again? you know I think about it sometimes comedy's tough and there's a lot of people out there doing it very well and my sort of my creative pull has always been to the more dramatic stuff. But uh, but it is very fun. And, I, I mean, I did have a great time on, on that show and I've had fun when I've done comedy in the past. So we'll see. You know, I'm, I'm open to all of it. Whatever happened with the Vlad script that you wrote? Do we... That had many, many ups and downs. We had two different directors attached and wrote many, many drafts of it, and it was just expensive. I mean, like we discussed, I'd wanted to tell the true story of Vlad the Impaler in which he was the um, inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula, so you can fairly effortlessly weave in all of the mythology that... Was the man that turned into the myth without actually jumping the shark right. and making him a vampire? Right. But it was very difficult to justify the level of budget that we wanted to, that we really needed to bring that world alive in a in a really sort of exciting and visceral way. So we just we sort of we we. Push the boulder up the hill a few times. It just never quite got it to the top. So, but it's it's still a story I'd love to tell. So you know maybe if keep on you know doing well and, well, and get yeah. some get some uh, inertia built up. Well, I especially mean, yeah. now you know there's like limited TV series. You We've know? had that conversation. I mean it's I developed that with um, Jeremy Kleiner at Brad, Brad, um, Plan B, Brad Pitt's company, mm-hmm. and so and he. I, I, he actually produced also The Lost City of Zed that I did And I have another project with him that we've been Developing and we've been talking about that The, p- the potential of doing it as a limited Series it might be pretty cool
1: Brad Pitt's company is called Plan B he named his company after the morning After
2: pill yeah, <laughs> yeah. Take a second With that you know when you're that handsome
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: Hey come on, It's always Plan B somewhere am I right guys okay. Always plan B somewhere. Yeah, I think it'd be really interesting. I wonder if there was a, I wonder if there was a network that we were on right now that was good with genre programming that might do a Vlad the Impaler show. AMC? Yeah, I'm talking about you. Uh, We have time for one more question, I believe. One more fan question. Hey, what's your name?
0: Hi, Gina from Los Angeles. And what's your question? Uh, What was it like shooting in the jungle for Lost City of Z? Uh,
2: It was wonderful. I mean, it was really, really wonderful. It was um, its amazing to be. I mean, I obviously, I think we all live in cities, right, where most you'll see of the natural world is going to a park and seeing a tree with a couple of birds in it. So to be somewhere that was so vital and, like, filled with life. And, you know, we all, this climate change and overpopulation and everything, I think, have a tendency to get very... Uh, neurotic and upset about the state of the world, and it was really reassuring and exciting to be somewhere that was so filled with life. But obviously, it had its downsides too, because some of that life wants to kill you. Um, <laughs> I had a rather unpleasant interaction with a um, beetle um, that burrowed its way into my ear while I was sleeping, and 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 got in. But Are you didn't... fucking kidding? That's the bug! Oh god. <laughs> yeah. It got in, but then it couldn't get back out. Oh, God. It had never had to walk backwards before, and it wasn't sure And you were worried about shaking a sweaty guy's hand, and you had a fucking beetle (laughs) burrowing in your brain? Dude, so it got there, and it hit the uh, eardrum and it couldn't go any further and it panicked so it just thought it would bite, it chew its way through. Oh, God! So it, it bit a, a hole in my eardrum so I woke up to this sort of pneumatic num- what sounded like a pneumatic drill in my ear as it was like burrowing around panicking. And I had one of the... We were working six days a week, and it was our, our, our day off the next day, and I didn't want to bother anyone. But we were in the <laughs> middle of the jungle, middle of nowhere. So I had one of those, you know, like, uh, irrigation pots, yeah. like uh, water irrigation pots, like a netty pot. Uh, and I just filled it up with water and stuck it in my ear and tried to, like, you know, flush him out. And nothing came out, but he stopped moving, so I thought, all right, this is going to be okay. So I went back to bed. Went what? Back to bed, <laughs> <laughs> and I, They're st- beetle in your head! I work hard, I was tired. <laughs> so I went back to sleep and I woke up the next morning and it was moving around again. And I said, oh man, we're going to have to do something about this. So I called production and they called an ambulance and an ambulance came to the hotel, but the uh, medic didn't speak any English and so she brought the receptionist of the hotel with her. So she came and put the instrument in my ear and had a little look around and then I was just, like, trying to make eye contact with her to, to discern what actually was happening. She didn't look to me. She looked at the receptionist from the hotel and went... <laughs> and handed him the uh, the scope. And then he had a look in my ear, and I thought, all right, this is probably the point where we go to hospital, because uh, this is... Uh, this is Then not... they pulled the beetle out? Yeah, they had to flush it out, and it was... Uh... Did you keep it? No, it was a very <laughs> sad story for me and the beetle. You know, the, iri- the pump that they used to irrigate out the ear canal. It's very powerful, so the beetle sort of disintegrates. Good, fuck
1: that guy! <laughs> fuck him!
0: I Seriously, bad, how dare you crawl into your No, I, I really, ear. I
2: wanted to figure out a way to get him out alive, <laughs> but I thought maybe we could have made friends. Oh my god, that is one of the most horrifying things I've ever... Oh god, I'm gonna have nightmares about that. I do... It's funny, I had a girlfriend years ago and a moth flew into her ear. Yeah. And she, like, completely, like, completely panicked and wigged out and was literally, like, running around the living room like a mad person, screaming and slapping her ear. you sure the moth wasn't just driving her brain? Right. (laughs) It was just (laughs) staring at the light. But I had to grab her and I grabbed her. I mean, this is... I don't know, maybe too much information, and pinned her to our bed and, uh, and got some um, tweezers and pulled it out. Oh. And so I'd have sort of already gone through that procedure before. So that oh, was, Okay, good. I was You're able to, like, un, you know. So I, if
1: you ever get a bug in your ear, Charlie Hunnam's your guy. Uh, I have a uh, present for you. So we have a bug for you. <laughs> Do you, you want a shield or gauntlets?
2: Uh, gauntlets.
1: Gauntlets, all right. Here you go. Here are your... Here, put, hold your hand out. Yeah, there you go. Get that in there. And then get this in here. Great, I will take that for you. Never take those off uh, the rest of your life. Just a couple more quick things
2: before we let you go. What's going on with pack room 2? Is there a pack room 2? Are you doing a pack room 2? There is a pack room 2. I uh, was not available. I was shooting something else. Got and I had a very... Finite amount of time, sure. so I am not doing it. Okay, but, gotcha. Um, uh, well, I may we'll,
1: show up. You might for just a pop tiny up. Any little appearance, we'll see. Uh, just some rapid-fire questions before we let you go. Joan Sooks on Twitter: Is there an actor with whom you feel you've been
2: chasing the same roles? Oh, wow. Yeah, through like the different stages of my career, there have been several. There was a rather annoying period of time where Justin Timberlake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, like two, maybe even three roles in a row that I had wanted. So um, really, you better watch out, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see if you're gonna. Uh,
1: lady bonus, it's a reaction. I just want to see if there's any good questions, uh, any good questions. Oh, Wendy Mac, twenty-seven. Are you interested in directing or producing in the future?
2: Yes, I am currently already producing. I have three projects that I'm developing as a producer that are things for me to star in as an actor. And then I have a film that I've been doing a tremendous job procrastinating, actually sitting down to write, that I would like to direct myself. A tiny, tiny little independent film. Is there anything you can tell us about
1: any of those?
2: Um, the film that I want to direct is a little love story set against the backdrop of the gypsy community in the north of England. Cool.
1: Great. So. Does it have a title? Do you have a title for you? No. All right. Up to
2: suggestions.
1: Uh, oh, suggestions if you... Call it uh, Bug in My Ear. Okay. <laughs> uh, working title working title, yeah, yeah, okay, so we got that uh, uh, big uh, favorite movie TV shows yeah that's all right what's your oh you know I'm kind of curious uh Real Negan on Instagram wants to know uh, what's your favorite movie
2: oof that's an impossible one I really don't have a favorite movie. what have I been watching a lot recently uh, this is one of those blank things where it's basically all I think about and all I spend every second of my day doing is watching movies and then I ask a question like this. <laughs> and you, don't, you can't no think about it. Yeah, I
1: know. It's, it's too big um, of a... It's like going to Google and going, I can find out
2: anything I want. <laughs> oh, what do I want to know? Oh, I can learn anything. You know, it's a safe... Godfather 2 is always a safe one to throw out there. Yeah, good. Excellent.
1: <laughs> and then, Hodge's art, the defining question, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Star Wars as- Uh, one of the things that we've kind of been doing at the end of the show is because, you know, one of the reasons why I started the podcast was just to, I just wanted to learn about people. I wanted to learn as I sort of feel like I, I don't really know what I'm doing. How do other people figure out what they want to do? How do other people figure? This has all just been an incredible learning experience for me. I always love to get just nuggets of wisdom from people. So I guess, is there any piece of life advice or is there some sort of guiding principle that, you know, sort of you, you take with you everywhere, that keeps your head above water and keeps you sane? Like, what's something that you... I mean, you said the Thoreau quote uh, earlier, mm-hmm.
2: uh, but is there anything else that that you leave? I don't know if it's great advice because it's a double-edged sword. It both cr- it both uh, motivates me uh, and also creates an enormous amount of anxiety, but I, I, I think that the defining... Um, the defining obsession of my life so far has been the judicious use of time,
1: mm-hmm.
2: just recognizing how precious time is and trying to make the most of it every day, like wake up and, you know, and, 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 you know, we all have our responsibilities, financial and responsibilities to family, but to try to carve out as much time every day to bring forth who you want to be and what you want to do with your life. Excellent. Uh,
1: this was amazing. Thank you so much, Charlie Hammond, for being here. <laughs> King Arthur, Legend of the Swords in theaters May 12th. Also remember to check out our talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to find out who's going to be on the show and how you can be a part of it. Uh, and when is, uh, when is the other film coming out? Do you know yet? We don't know yet.
2: Yeah, we do know. I should know. I could, I'll, I'll get back to Brandon, do we know? Do we know? Can we find out? April, let's... April fifteenth. Why not? You know it, it.
1: It comes out different places. Oh, it comes Obviously, out. In, I, you know places. what? I think that's already. I think it's already come out by the time this airs. That's what it is. Uh huh. That it has already been out. Anyway, it, the movie did great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank It was you. great. Well Thank done. Thanks, uh, Charlie Hunnam, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you for be nice to each other. Don't text and drive. And I'll see you next week. Bye bye. Now leaving nerdist.com.